I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of our Lord and of Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sakes? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in the hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly at the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel but I have used none of these things. I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for I would, it would be better for me to die than to have any man make a boast, my boast, an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of the right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. Those who are under the law, as though under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I may win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without law, the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I may win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not, I myself will not be disqualified. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you so much for the way that you teach us from your words so that we can see more of your heart and the way that you are. We thank you for the servant that uh, was used mightily to show us uh, a path as well. But Lord, we know without the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no hope. And in him, we can be the light of this world. And we can quit being the old man and walk in the new man. Help us today as we listen to your word to be changed so that when we go out into this dark, dark world that is getting darker every day, that we may be a brighter light to glorify Christ and to win some like Paul's talking about. Thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. It's been my observation that many Christians view our God-given assignment to lay down our lives for the sake of Christ as something that might happen to some Christians at some point. But our true assignment, beloved, and this I say to every single brother and sister here, our true assignment is to die daily for the sake of Christ, every one of us. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 11, Paul wrote, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal dying flesh. That's what this morning's passage is about. It's about dying to self daily, for the sake of Christ and for the eternal good of other human beings. We learn in Acts chapter 18 that during Paul's second missionary journey, he spent 18 months in the city of Corinth. It was at that time that the church in Corinth came into existence through the ministry of Paul and his co-workers. The first few verses of that same chapter of Acts tell us that during his time in Corinth, Paul was gainfully employed as a tent maker, working together with a couple of other faithful believers named Aquila and Priscilla who happened to share the same vocation. Now, if you take this morning's passage in isolation from the rest of Paul's letters and from the book of Acts, uh, it would be easy to, to conclude that Paul's only income throughout his many years of ministry as Christ's apostle to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire, that his only income was from making tents. That is, that he never accepted financial gifts from any of the churches that he had worked to establish and to nurture. But other passages tell us that that's, that's not the case. Paul did, in fact, accept financial support from other churches. He did not accept financial support from the Corinthian church. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17, Paul said to the Philippians, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, and by the way, the two primary churches that Paul dealt with in the region of Macedonia were Philippi and Thessalonica, okay? At the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you, Philippians. For even in, even in Thessalonica, which is next door to Philippi, you Philippians sent a gift more than once for my needs. 
Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit that increases to your account. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 9, Paul said to the Corinthians, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preach the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. <laughs> now, it's very, very instructive to notice which of these churches was most able to support the ministries of Paul and his co-workers from the standpoint of the church's own material prosperity. For all the reasons that we talked about in the first message of this series, Corinth was one of the most affluent, wealthy cities in the entire Roman Empire. But the churches that actually did provide financial support to Paul were among the least prosperous cities and towns in the Roman Empire, most notably the churches in Macedonia. Later in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells the Corinthian saints that he expects them to honor their pledge to gather up financial gifts, not for Paul's use, but for, for Paul to get from them and take to the heavily persecuted Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Paul had to verbally twist the arms of these affluent, wealthy Corinthians to exhort them to give what they had already said they were going to give to help out those suffering saints in Jerusalem. The contrast between the Corinthians' attitude toward giving and the Macedonians' attitude toward giving is stunning. <laughs> Listen to what Paul says in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 8, about the heart of the Macedonian saints when it came to giving financially to address the needs of that persecuted Jerusalem church. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of, of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Isn't that marvelous? For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Those words should have humbled the well-heeled Corinthians to their very core. Now let's rewind to the current passage and situation in 1 Corinthians 9. In the first few verses of this chapter, it's evident that Paul has become the object of some fairly harsh criticism from some in the church at Corinth. The controversy that he's addressing here has to do with whether or not he and his fellow workers should be compensated financially by those to whom he has ministered on Christ's behalf. 
Now bear in mind that Paul, by this point, has already moved out of Corinth. He's, when he writes this letter, he is most likely in the city of Ephesus on the other side of the Aegean Sea. The Macedonian saints had supported Paul while he was building the church in Corinth. But the Corinthian saints had not sent support to Paul after he had gone out from them to continue his work in other places. Considering all that Paul says in both of his letters to the Corinthians, I am not sure, but I suspect that their complaint against him went something like this. Paul, you and your co-workers really shouldn't be accepting financial support from the churches if you're able to make a living by the work of your own hands. And certainly none of your co-workers should expect the churches to cover the cost for their wives to travel with them. After all, their wives could just stay home and be taken care of by their extended families or their home churches. So, Paul, while we appreciate all that you've done, we believe it would be a bad stewardship for us to support you financially. In one of the many powerful ironies that we find in the Bible, in Paul's defense against this complaint of the Corinthian saints, he compellingly defends a right that he never actually uses in their case. Now I should point out that if we're talking it ever about what God owes us, the only right that any of us will ever have in the eyes of God is to be condemned because of, because of our grievous violation of His character and His ways, His holiness. But Paul's not talking here about rights that are owed to him by God. He's talking about what God says every local church owes to those who minister to them on God's behalf. From verse 1 to the middle of verse 12, Paul presents an airtight case that all believers everywhere should be delighted to participate in providing for the material needs of men who, like Paul, faithfully proclaim the Word of God and care for the flock of God. Now guys, if any of this sounds self-serving on my part, keep listening to where Paul goes with this. He makes his case through a series of questions and statements. In the first two verses, he establishes his apostolic authority over the Corinthian church and all the churches. I believe his first question, am I not free, in verse 1, looks back at what he just said in chapter 8 about limiting Christian liberty with love. And I believe that same question, am I free, anticipates what he's about to say later in this same chapter about how he handles his freedom in the matter of receiving financial support. He then asks, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The answer to those questions is found in Acts chapter 9, the powerful narrative of Paul's miraculous conversion. At the time of his conversion, he was named, he was still named Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a militant enemy of Jesus Christ, a vigorous persecutor of every, everyone connected with Jesus. 
He was a member of the ruling council of the Jews in Jerusalem called the Sanhedrin, the same priestly council that had coerced Pontius Pilate into crucifying Jesus. He was, by his own declaration, a Hebrew of Hebrews, who considered himself to be a frontline defender of the faith of his forefathers against what he believed to be an evil blasphemy being perpetrated by the followers of Christ. A blasphemy that he believed posed a serious threat to the Jewish faith and to the unique place of Israel as the special people of God. Those, those things were very, very important to Paul. But one day, Paul was walking on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus to find some more Christians to arrest and to bring back in bonds to Jerusalem where he hoped they would be tried and executed. <laughs> Something happened to Paul. Jesus appeared to him in a literally blinding light. And he said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus gave Paul a spiritual heart transplant that day. And he commissioned him to be his ambassador to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. And beloved, there is nothing at all in that passage to indicate that Paul had any choice in the matter. But once he was in Christ, he was all in. Paul was very aware that his apostleship was entirely Christ's doing, not his doing. And that fact is fundamental to everything that Paul says in all of his letters. In the, in the authority of that Christ-ordained apostleship, Paul now says to the Corinthians, are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. There was a special connection between Paul and the Corinthian church. The church at Corinth had grown and flourished through Paul's teaching and nurture. He later wrote in 2 Corinthians 3 that the Corinthian saints were themselves the only letter of commendation that he and his co-workers needed. That they were, a, they were a letter, quote, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Paul's love for the community of the saints in Corinth was as a father's tender affection for his, his own beloved children. And the authority of every word that he wrote to them on Christ's behalf was unquestionable. Against that backdrop, Paul then proceeds to make a very powerful case that these same Corinthian saints should have been eager to support his ministry to them and to others financially. In verses 3 through 6, he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from work? When he says refrain from work, he doesn't mean sit like a bump on a log. He means refrain from other means of income so we can focus our attention on the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are two issues going on here. 
One is financial compensation for ministering the gospel. The other is compensation at a level that would enable the Christian workers to take their wives with them when their ministry required travel. Personally, I'm, I'm very grateful that Community Bible Chapel generously provides for my and my family's needs, and I say that with great earnestness. And on top of that, you even let me keep my wife. <laughs> and, if, and if my wife didn't work outside the home, we would still have everything that we need and more. That same joyful generosity that I behold here overflowed in the much poorer Macedonian churches that God had also raised up through the faithfulness of Paul and his fellow workers, like Silas and Timothy and others. At the same time, the Jewish Christian churches in Jerusalem and Judea were supporting the work of men like Peter and James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, at a level that allowed those men to take their wives with them as they traveled to the dispersed Christians throughout those regions. But that same generous spirit clearly did not characterize the Corinthian church in Paul's day. And that was a problem. And Paul, speaking on God's behalf, wanted the Corinthians to, to understand that it was a problem for them, not for him. Paul wasn't the least bit worried about provision for his own needs. Not the least. But he was deeply concerned for the Corinthians because of their attitude about giving. In verse 7, 1 Corinthians 9, he again presents a series of questions. He says, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Who tends the flock and does not use the milk of the flock? The, the answer, of course, to each of those questions is the same. Nobody does. In verses 8 through 10, he demonstrates that the point he's making is not a new point at all. That the very same principle he's setting before these Corinthian saints was declared by God long before in the law of Moses. He said, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law not also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And then he asked the question, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. The Old Testament verse that he cites here is Deuteronomy 25.4, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Paul cites that exact same verse in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, where he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. That word honor in this passage and in the, in the Corban passage that was mentioned in the worship, it doesn't just mean giving credit to someone for, the, for their worth and reputation. It also means taking care of them. 
of their material needs. All right. Here in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 to 14, Paul brings his rebuke of the Corinthians to its conclusion. I'm going to skip the second part of verse 12 for a moment, and we'll come right back to it. Paul says, verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? See, he's saying, by the grace of God, we imparted to you eternal blessedness. Is it too much if through you we receive temporary provision? And then he says, verse 12a, if others share the right over you, do we not all the more? And then he raises one more Old Testament parallel and one New Testament teaching of Jesus to finish driving home his point. He says, do you not know, verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from that altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Under the law of Moses, God gave the bread used for the table of showbread to the priests to eat. The priests also received parts of every sin and guilt offering and every peace offering. And this was part of God's means for providing sustenance to them and their families through the offerings that were presented to him. In that same mold, Paul says, in Luke 9, when Jesus sent his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God, he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. See, what Jesus meant when he spoke of his messenger's who went out on his behalf being received by those to whom they brought the proclamation of the kingdom, that reception he's talking about took two forms. People of peace would be willing to hear the message. And they would care for the material needs of the messengers. If they didn't do both of those things, Christ's messengers were to shake the dust off of their feet on their way out of those houses and communities. In short, as Paul puts it here in verse 14, Jesus directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Paul thus concludes his rebuke against the Corinthian saints with the command of Jesus. <laughs> Case closed, right? Starting in the second half of verse 12 and then resuming in verse 15, Rather than demanding that the Corinthians do what he just told them they were obligated before God to do, Paul makes a surprisingly different case. He lays out the reason that in his ministry to the Corinthian saints, he denied himself the very God-given right that he just compellingly established, the right to be provided for financially by those to whom he ministered. Here are verses 11 and 12 again. This time I'll read all of verse 12. 
If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, and this is the big hinge point in the passage, nevertheless, we did not use this right. But we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Here's verses 14 to 18. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things that it may be done so uh, in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Twice in those verses, he says that even though the church is responsible to God to financially support those whom God raises up to minister to them, Paul and his co-workers did not use this right. They did not avail themselves of this right. And he says unambiguously, he does not want the Corinthians to start paying him for his work of ministry. Even if they did, he wouldn't accept their support. He says, for it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. What boast? <laughs> His boast that he has nothing to boast about. His boast in Christ. That he is compelled to preach the gospel because his apostleship and his assignment to preach the gospel to the Gentiles didn't come from him, but from God from the resurrected Christ. Verse 18 demands our attention, so please listen. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. The only re reward that Paul prized had nothing to do with financial provision. His treasured reward was the measureless blessing of being useful to his Savior and God while asking nothing for himself except that usefulness. Oh, that God would make us care only for that reward and for nothing else in our labors to care only that he would make us eternally useful to advance the gospel and kingdom of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verses 19 to 23, Paul reveals the goal of his refusal to receive compensation from the Corinthian saints. As we've already seen, Paul's approach with the saints at Corinth was very, very different in this matter than his approach with the saints in the Macedonian cities. Like, Philippi and Thessalonica, which were just a couple of hundred miles north of Corinth. Those churches were much less affluent than the church at Corinth, 
Yet Paul accepted financial gifts from the Macedonians while refusing financial support from the Corinthians. Why would he do that? Why would Paul accept financial gifts from poor believers and refuse financial gifts from wealthy believers? It's like Robin Hood on opposite day. The powerful lesson of all this is found in the, in the powerful irony of it. Here's Paul's answer. Here's why. Because the example that the affluent believers in Corinth needed to see in those who represented Christ was the example of holding very loosely to material things. The poor believers in Macedonia didn't need that example. They didn't care all that much about it. In fact, they cared so little about material things that they gave generously out of their poverty. Paul's point is that every person who serves as an ambassador of Christ on earth must become all things to all people so that by all means we may win some to Christ. Paul's not saying that you and I actually save anyone. He, he, he couldn't have been clearer on that point than he was in the last two verses of 1 Corinthians 1. He said, by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. The salvation of every redeemed child of God is Christ's doing from start to finish. But what Paul is saying is that our usefulness as instruments in the hands of God in saving lost souls is very much impacted by our willingness to be all things to all people so that by all means God may save more people through these jars of clay. That's why we're still here, guys. He could have taken every one of us the moment that he saved us. They left us here because He has a mission for us. And that mission is to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of the Gospel and the nurturing of the people of God. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that He commanded us. And lo, He is with us even to the end of the age. For Paul, this meant that when he ministered to Jews, he willingly did Jewish things. Like when he circumcised his co-worker Timothy, whose mother was Jewish and father was a Gentile. Why did he do that? Not because Timothy had to be circumcised to be a good Christian. Or a useful Christian, I should say. But only for one reason, guys. Paul circumcised Timothy to eliminate the issue of circumcision as a potential distraction from the gospel for the unbelieving Jews to whom they ministered and for the Jewish Christians to whom they ministered. He took that off the table. Why? Because it didn't matter. And recognize, Paul makes a big deal about, about Judaizers requiring Gentiles to be circumcised. He hates that. Read Colossians 2. Read Romans 2. He's, he's not, he's not mild-mannered in his treatment of that problem. But he's willing to take that right off the table with Timothy. It was toward that same exact goal that when, when Paul found himself ministering to Gentiles, 
He studiously avoided anything that might communicate to them through his example that they had to observe Jewish practices in order to be on good terms with God. Guys, this is not situational ethics. Paul never compromised the truth of the Word of God or the ways of God in order to win souls the way some people want to do now. He never compromised the gospel. He never soft-pedaled the proclamation of sin and righteousness and judgment and redemption. He never compromised the absolute exclusivity of Jesus as the one and only way for men to be made right with God. He never called good evil or evil good the way some are doing today in an effort to make the gospel more palatable to sinners. And you and I can never do any of those things either. This is not situational ethics. Paul was ready to drop any and every cultural add-on that men falsely link to Christianity like a hot potato in order to remove every distraction that the traditions of men might possibly cause to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was ready to overturn every expectation of men that did not come from the Word of God. And he was ready to personally do without every comfort and every protection that this world has to give in order to make Christ the one and only issue. Are you and I ready to do those things? The one who serves as Christ's ambassador, and that's the assignment that he gave to every one of his children, must, like Paul, learn in whatever circumstances he finds himself to be content. Philippians 4.11 Are you content with the circumstance in which God has placed you? It's foundational to usefulness. If I'm ministering in the midst of Christians who are unduly dependent on their financial independence as the measure of their well-being, I would do well to consider not accepting compensation from them for my ministry to them on Christ's behalf. Even if that means that I have no visible way to provide day by day for my and my family's material needs. Jesus promised in Matthew 6 that God would take care of all of those things, didn't He? He said, if God can take care of birds and weeds, He can take care of you. One day at a time. When I started candidating for a pastoral position right after seminary, that was 1986, by the way, and I didn't start preaching full-time until 2011. But when I was candidating, I met a young pastor who was being, well, I won't say what he was being paid, but he and his wife had two kids and one other on the way, and it was quite apparent from the cars in the parking lot at his church that they were paying him a whole lot less than the average income of the people in his church. A whole lot less. But he was ministering joyfully, faithfully, and without complaint. And beloved, that's exactly what I needed to see at that point in my life. In the last four verses of our chapter this morning, Paul presents a series of allusions to athletic competitions. 
running a race, boxing, and, and a more general reference to competing in the games. Paul's words would certainly have gotten the attention of the Corinthian saints. One year before and one year after each instance of the Olympic Games in Greece, a similar athletic competition was held in the town of Isthmia. It's a hard thing for me to say. Isthmia, named for the Isthmus of Corinth, the narrow band of land that connected the Peloponnesian Peninsula with mainland Greece. Isthmia was less than five miles from Corinth. It was like a suburb. The Isthmian games were held in honor of the Greek god Poseidon, the god of the sea. The games were open to everyone in Greece. They were exceedingly well attended, especially by the Athenians. So these games were a really big deal to the city of Corinth economically. The games included foot races, chariot races, wrestling, boxing, and an interesting sport called pancration, whose closest modern equivalent would be mixed martial arts. In the Roman era, the prize for the winner, and there was just one winner for each event, was a pine wreath, a perishable wreath. The point that Paul makes through these sports illusions should have been very clear to the Corinthians. Like any of us who have ever witnessed an Olympic competition in our day, they would have understood that nobody, nobody wins games at that super competitive level without the most rigorous self-discipline maintained consistently over a long period of time. And that self-discipline necessarily includes a high degree of self-denial. A man or woman who lives for the moment, who equates instant gratification and self-indulgence with personal well-being, will never be any more than a spectator at that kind of competition. And a Christian who lives for the moment, who equates self-gratification and near-term gratification with personal well-being will never be more than a spectator in the advancement of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. If there's one crystal clear truth that should shine forth from this chapter of 1 Corinthians, it is that you and I cannot live for ourselves and for Jesus. We cannot insist on laying hold of every freedom or of any freedom that we possess in Christ at the same time that we are focused on loving and serving others as Christ loved and served us who deserved only condemnation. Anytime you hear a Christian talk about what is owed to him by other people, there should be red flags going off all over the place. Every single day of our lives, we have to pick one or the other. Getting what we're convinced is due to us or giving to Christ what is due to Him. Like John the Baptist, we must decrease and Christ must increase. And beloved, nothing will make it more well with our souls this day and every day than devotion to that priority. The very great reward of living life in that way is eternal usefulness to God 
and nearness to God right now. As King David wrote at the end of Psalm 16, Lord, in Your presence is fullness of joy. At Your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Dear Father, when we cling to what we think other people owe us, we ask You to humble us. Remind us what we actually deserve. Teach us to be content with Your kind provision for each day's need and to overflow with generosity toward others, knowing that we have already received the unfathomable riches of Christ. Teach us to hold very, very lightly, even to the freedoms that You have granted to us in Christ, that we may be mightily used by You to fill Your kingdom with the souls of lost sinners just like we once were. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.